Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. The word commit, C-O-M-M-I-T, is a verb. What is a verb? It's an action. So the word commit, according to the dictionary, means to do, perform, or perpetrate. It can also mean to pledge oneself to a position on an issue or a question, to express one's intentions, feelings, etc., It can also mean to bind or obligate as by pledge or assurance. It can mean to consign for preservation. Another one actually can mean to give in trust or charge, especially for safekeeping, to consign oneself to something or to commend oneself to something, as in Jesus on the cross saying, Lord, I commit my spirit to you, or I commend myself to you. Today, we're going to be talking about commitment as we continue on in this uh, theme this month called Peace in the Wilderness. Uh, We've been looking in the Old Testament about, uh, excuse me, specifically at the 40 years of wilderness wandering, which actually is what the book of Numbers in the first five books of the Bible are all about. The book of Numbers is all about the wilderness wanderings. It's about them being punished and having to stay in the wilderness and trying to figure out how to live in a wilderness region. Over a million of them, men, women, and children. And we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was written in the wilderness. Deuteronomy was written by Moses in the wilderness, setting up the next generation who would be going into the promised land for how they should live their lives. It's almost like a reiteration, if you will, of Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy is. Because Deuteronomy is written a generation later. Do you see what Moses is doing? He's reminding this younger generation that have now grown into adulthood what their parents knew face-to-face with God. In Exodus The only time we see God speaking directly to his people, mouth to ear, is from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. He tells Moses, I want you to prepare the people. Make them consecrated unto me over the next three days. Don't let them have sexual relations, have them go through the processes of being pure and holy set apart for me because I want to speak to them directly. And so from Mount Sinai, the very words of God come. And do you know what those words were? The Ten Commandments. That is the one time in their history that God had all of the people gathered together And he said, I want to speak directly to them. I don't want to speak to a representative or a prophet or some teacher or holy man. I want to speak directly to the people. The only other time we get that in human history is in the first century. Where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
See, this very God who desires our commitment to his commands, to be obedient to him, was committed enough to us to step out of heaven, out of eternity and into time, take on human flesh, receive the punishment that we should receive, so that when we believe in him, we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. I want to talk about that commitment today. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll give you time to turn there. I'll be reading today from the New Living Translation. Those of you at home, go ahead and turn in your Bibles there when you get a chance to. We'll be picking up there in just a moment. I came across this illustration I thought it was so powerful. I don't know specifically if it's just a legend or actually historical fact, but I believe what we know about legend is there's part of it rooted in historical fact. And it came out of the Houston Chronicle in 1998, and I'm sure if you want to do some research and help me find out if this is true or not, you could do that. But I think if you listen to the illustration, it bears out this idea of commitment. So it's about patriotic commitment, but that's not what this sermon's going to be about. It's not about patriotic commitment, okay? But listen to what it says about this guy by the name of John Hancock. How many of you have ever heard of John Hancock? A few of you, okay. Often, when we ask for a person's signature, at least when I was a kid and in my young adulthood, teenage young adulthood years, you would hear people say, give me your John Hancock, right? Put your John Hancock on the line there. Why do we say that? And you may not have ever heard that. I've never heard that before. Well, why, why haven't you? That's been a common theme, at least through my lifetime. Put your John Hancock right here. It's because of the 56 signatures on the Declaration of Independence. Guess whose one is the largest? John Hancock. Now, lest we think John Hancock was pompous and arrogant and he just wanted to show everybody his signature, it says there was a reason he wrote it so large, okay? So listen to, what it, listen to this. The signature that belongs to John Hancock was the first, he was the first one to sign. He had all of the blank space, right? And if you're the first one to sign anything, you're like, okay, well, where do I sign? Oh, he didn't hesitate. And he took his spot and he signed his name very clearly, very large, very legible script so that the king of England could read his name without glasses. Do you know that? King George. Yeah, so King George had poor eyesight. And John Hancock, a British man, wanted very clearly for his king to see, we're done. We're done. And because I get the privilege of signing first, I'm going to sign it large and clearly so that even without your glasses, you can be able to see my name on there. Mr. Hancock wanted it to be very clear where his allegiance lay. His commitment to his country was so clear that King George III offered amnesty to all who would cease fighting. John Hancock was among the select few who were left out of that offer. Did you know that? So this morning, we have an allegiance as believers in Christ, and if you're here still exploring, you're questioning, is God real? Is this Jesus guy really all he's cracked up to be? Is the Bible true? You may be even wondering, is it worth the commitment? 
But those of you who are believers in Christ may have had your commitment challenged a time or two, and you may have been tossed about by the storms of life. And you question, is the commitment worth it? Is this really worth it? I've been in ministry long enough to see people waver in their faith, their commitment waver. And a lot of times what I understand about that wavering commitment is the truth of what Jesus says. If you build on shifting sands, you're going to always waver. You're going to always not be rooted in what you should. If you build upon the rock, you can withstand anything. But don't build your life on shifting sand. The problem, I think, in our culture, at least in our church culture in America, is that a lot of what's been preached from the stages of our pulpits is a bunch of fluff that lends itself to shifting sand. And I, listen, I've been in ministry long enough to preach enough fluff too. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody else, but also pointing them back at myself. And I came to the realization in my own ministry, in my own life as a pastor that I can't just tickle the ears anymore. It's not about filling the pews or people watching online. The real defining factor for me was when God, I felt, impressed upon me, who are you trying to please? Who are you most committed to? The church you pastor or me? Who are you most committed to? Your reputation? People liking you? Are you committed to me? And that reminder comes back. Remember, they're going to hate you. They're not going to like you very much. Actually, there may be times they persecute you, and I don't even mean with their words, but in actions. Who are you committed to? Because if you're committed to anyone else other than Christ, and if you're not founded on this firm foundation of faith, rooted in Christ... When persecution comes, guess what happens? We begin to either shift our perspectives and our beliefs to accommodate those who are speaking louder or who are persecuting us. Jesus, when he was standing before his accusers, what did he do? Did he scream at them? Did he curse them? says he stood silent before his accusers. Now there's a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place to speak truth, speak it in love, to speak it boldly. But sometimes when you're standing in front of people who are persecuting you, you know that you know in some instances that words won't make a difference. So the question that's on the table today is where does your commitment lie? Dare I even go here? Are you more committed to the one you're seated next to than you are to Christ? Husbands and wives, that's a hard one, isn't it? Now, here's the the truth of the matter. Let me very clearly state this. When you commit yourself solely to Christ, when the two of you are one in a relationship, if you are committed to Christ first and foremost, guess what it does to this commitment? It strengthens it. Do you know how many times I've met with couples, premarital and marital counseling, where they're so, com- they're so committed to this that when the other person fails, guess what happens? 
I'm committed to my husband, but my husband's not perfect. Well, I'm committed to my wife. My wife's not perfect. What happens to this? It's sometimes tears, doesn't it? But when you're committed to Christ first, above all else, guess what? Your spouse no longer is your God. When your spouse is no longer your God, you don't expect them to be perfect. You expect them to be good. You expect them to be faithful. You expect them to be loving. But your life doesn't come crashing down around you when your spouse is, isn't your all in all. When Christ is your all in all, who is good and perfect and holy and loving and everything that we are not, then this union as husband and wife can withstand everything. This isn't a marriage sermon, by the way. Just a little extra there. Deuteronomy 6, let's pick this up. Deuteronomy, like I said, they're finishing up their 40 years of wilderness wandering, the Israelites are, and Moses is saying, hey guys, I can't go with you. Because I'm being punished. I disobeyed God. But here are your final instructions before you enter the promised land. Do you remember a few weeks ago? Oh, Grace is here again. Grace, is that you? Grace, what does Deuteronomy mean? Second law. I was, I was, I, it's just so ironic you're here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Second law. So the first law is in Exodus and Leviticus. And so... Moses is saying, hey, just in case you guys forgot, I'm going to write you a whole nother scroll, and it's a second law, and you'll see a lot of uh, redundancy from Exodus, Leviticus, all the way into Deuteronomy, because he's basically writing for this next generation. Guess what? They didn't carry around a ton of different scrolls or a library or a printing press, so it necessitated the fact that that. Moses needed to write down, hey, here's a revised version. It's pretty much the same thing, but I just want to remind you, okay? So Deuteronomy 6, we use this in our child dedication or baby dedication services here at North Main. It's where a lot of the references come from, right, Melissa? Whoop, whoop. All right, Melissa. <clears throat> now listen to what he writes. These are the decrees and commands and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses writing. You must obey them in the land that you're about to enter and occupy. So you've not obeyed them very well in the wilderness for 40 years. Go back and read Numbers. It is a mess. And so it's like Moses is saying, you guys really sucked this up. And uh, so did I. That's why I can't go with you. But just as a reminder, when you go there, you got to do these things. Okay. And he goes on to say, you must obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy, and you and your children and grandchildren must fear or revere the Lord, your God, as long as you live. If you ob Okay, so that means for two more generations after theirs, and then they could just throw it out the window, right? Is that what he's saying? Oh, wait, we're people... We're people of the word. That's exactly what he said. And then after the third generation, you could just do whatever you want. No. There's an implied idea here that this needs to continue on for every generation. You and your children, grandchildren, must fear the Lord, your God, as long as you live. If you obey all these decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Do you catch the conditional statement there? 
There are two different types of covenant agreements in the Old Testament and in the New, specifically the Old Testament. It's the if-then. The if-then is a conditional covenant agreement. If you do this, then this will happen. Or if you do this, then I will do this. There's a non-conditional covenant agreement that God made with David. Okay, Dave, No matter how royally he messed up, the promise was given to David, an unconditional covenant that I will make sure that you will have a descendant that will always sit on the throne. And we know that the lineage of David comes down to Christ, and Christ's kingdom lasts forever, and so there was a fulfillment of that covenant through Christ Jesus, okay? But this is this conditional aspect. If you obey all of God's decrees and commands, what will happen? You will enjoy a long life. Now, that doesn't always work out. There's terminal disease that happens. There's other kinds of things that happens. And you can't always chalk it up to sin, except for the fact that sin is the root of all evil. We do know that. So I guess there's a sin factor there. So let me retract that and state that differently. You can't always chalk it up to somebody who has unconfessed sin in their life. Sometimes, in the case of Job, there are situations where you could be righteous, living a good life, but stuff happens, right? And, and you, there's no rhyme or reason, there's no, and you could question all you want, as Job did, and only come to the end of that whole scenario for God to say, where were you when I created the universe, carved out the oceans, Planted the mountains. Where, where were you when I did all of this? Even down to the smallest insect to the largest animal. And God's giving him perspective. You know, stuff's going to happen in your life, but are you still committed? Do you still trust me? You see, that's what it boils down to. Stuff may not go the way you plan it. Okay? It just may not. But the result of living like this there's a factor of truth that's embedded there. If you follow God and live, here's, let, me, let me say it this way. The life expectancy of someone who is messed up in sin and doing things like adultery and drug addiction, and all, guess what happens to the lifespan? Okay, let's just use logic here. If you live a good and holy life committed to God, obeying his commands, not, you know, being unfaithful to your spouse, sleeping around, risking getting any number of diseases that will definitely shorten your lifespan. If you are actually living for him rather than for you, what is the natural tendency of somebody who lives a life like that? To have a longer life. See, there's truth laden in this. It's not like God is, is saying that every intervention is going to be miraculous. If you commit yourself to me, I promise you, it's going to be a longer life, and it's going to be a better life for you, okay? No matter what comes your way. All right, let me continue. Uh, listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's just that milk and honey, it's, it didn't really have rivers of milk and honey. In case you're curious, all right? It still doesn't today. That idea as an analogy or a metaphor, it's abundant, it's amazing. 
Milk and honey were great items of sustenance that you could have in that day and age, okay? So when it's the land of milk and honey, it's abundant, it's amazing, it's good. Just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. He promised you this hundreds of years ago, that's what he says, and it's still that way today. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? The New Testament, Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on those two. Where do you think he's quoting that from? Right here. And then Leviticus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. All right, let's continue. Um, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Sarah, <laughs> I see you. What are those boxes that we tie, that Jewish people tie to the wrist and to their foreheads? Okay, well, yes, phylacteries. That's a weird word, okay? It sounds like it could be something else, but it's not, all right? Because I know some of your minds are going there. A phylactery is a box that has these little small rolled up scrolls of scripture on them. And so when you see in a picture today of an Orthodox Jewish, per Jewish person with these leather bands wrapped in a spiral around their arm that end right about the wrist where there's a box there, and then there's a little box on the forehead that looks like a small little top hat, okay? It's wrapped around and it sticks off the forehead. Those are called phylacteries. And so they took this literally. From this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy, Jews today, Orthodox Jews, when they are in a time of worship, will still tie these phylacteries, will keep them on their wrists and on their foreheads. Do you know that? Okay, just in case you were curious. You're like, I really didn't need to know that. What will I ever use this for in life? That's what we said about math when I was growing up. <clears throat> All right, anywho, let's continue. Repeat them again and again. Talk to them when you're home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you get up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you do that with the Word of God? I'm not asking you to wear little boxes on your heads or on your wrists. But the truth is still relevant here. Have you committed to memory in your head this Word? As the psalmist says, in 119, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you talk to your kids about it? Do you talk about it on the road, at home, when you're out and about? Or do you relegate the talk of the word of God to church? The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you, and he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is a land large, with prosperous cities that you did not build. Catch that. You see what God's telling them? <clears throat> this place is super good. I mean, it's not only good and abundant with natural resources, there are cities there. There are cultivated lands there. There are farmed places there. 
that you guys had nothing to do with. I pretty much set you up for everything. You don't have to start from scratch. It's a ready-made place. This is the promise of God. Yes, he expects us to step in to his will, his ways, and his purposes. He expects us to commit to him so that it will go well with us in that calling he has called us to. But a lot of times as he goes ahead of us and precedes us, he levels the playing ground in ways. Now, it doesn't mean he always does that. There's still challenges. But as he goes ahead of us, he sets us up for success. What he requires of us is obedience. You know when the difficulties come? When we doubt and when we waver. Why do you think they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? 40 years prior, God said, here it is. I'll go ahead of you and I will drive out the pagan nations. All you have to do is to step into what I've promised you. Are you catching the correlation here? Do you catch the application here? It doesn't mean everything will be perfect. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges. But when we step in to what God has called us to, he always provides. He never leaves us alone. When we commit to obeying him and loving him through our obedience, there's nothing that he won't do for us. You see, I contend why you don't see miracles in the abundance that we read about them in Scripture today is because we don't have a mindset of belief, but rather of doubt. Why doesn't God heal this person? Or when, when was the last time you saw a blind person healed or a deaf person healed or the dead raised? Talked about this with some friends yesterday. You see, we're told in Mark by Jesus himself that you will be able through the Spirit of God to do even greater things than you've seen me do, Jesus says. But I contend, but for our lack of belief, we don't see that anymore. See, the church of God, which you are in right now, has a belief that the miraculous gifts did not die off in the first century with the apostles. But that those promises of God are still alive and well today. And yet we live in a culture that has to be, show me first and then I'll believe. But even when it's shown, people still don't believe. Nothing's new. The religious leaders, Jesus could have done miracle after miracle, which he did, even raising from the grave wasn't enough for them. And I'm telling you today, raising from the grave won't be enough for some people to believe. If Jesus stood on this stage today and had every one of you, myself included, say, here, come, I want you to touch this. See this nail print? A couple thousand years ago. It's a reminder what I've done for you. Oh, here, check out my side. The Roman soldier who was trying to check and see if I was dead didn't break my legs. Instead, he shoved a spear in my side. Check, I got the scar to prove it. 
we've been entrusted with great privilege as believers in Christ to go and do as Christ has done for us. Yes, he has raised us from the dead spiritually, but he is still active, alive, and well through the power of his Holy Spirit in the body of Christ doing miracles today if you have eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and you know where he's working. The Holy Spirit has left many of our churches today in our culture because of a lack of commitment and a lack of belief. We, we don't go back to his word to find out who he is, what he does, and how he does it. One of the questions I have for kids in my class often is, how do you, when, you, when you pray to God, how, does, how do you learn to hear the voice of God? It's one of the common questions I get as a pastor. How do I know when God's calling me? How do I know what the voice of God sounds like? And I say the question, you've maybe heard me say this before, is, all right, if your parent or your child was in the next room and there were other voices going on around you, would you be able to pick out the voice of your loved one? Would you? See, I contend that praying is not just one-way communication, it's two. It's, it's, it's more than just speaking, it's listening. But when you listen, you have to be so in tune to know what his voice sounds like that you're obedient to move when he calls. And if your voice isn't as in tune to his, or if your ear isn't as in tune to his voice as it is to your loved one, where's your commitment? Now that sounds hard, it's a stepping on of toes, it's a difficult thing. Then, Brandon, how do I learn the voice of God? How often are you in the Word? See, this was a problem with the generation that Moses is speaking to. He knows their tendency to forget. That's why he's saying, write them on your doorpost. Put them on your forehead. Write it backwards so that when you look in the mirror, you see it the right way. Or is that right? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. But you know what I'm talking about. Put it on your forehead, on your wrists. Live it everywhere you go. This is why it was a requirement for all Jewish males to have memorized the Torah by the time they were 12. They started at age four at the earliest, but more than likely five years old. And guess what school they went to? It was the synagogue. All Jewish males were required to go to the synagogue from age 4 or 5 up to age 12. And guess how they learned to write? What did they learn to write? The Torah, the scripture, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Guess what they learned to memorize and to read? The Torah. By the time they had gone through those years of education, no matter how bad of a student you were, you had had the word so embedded in you. Now, there were times within certain cycles of the culture of Judaism, after they entered the land, that they forgot the law. And that cycle was a vicious one. It was sin, slavery, sorrow, and salvation. That's the fourfold cycle you see in the book of Judges. And you continue to see when the kings come on the scene. Sin, slavery, sorrow, which leads to repentance, and then salvation. 
they would have these mighty revivals. And so after sometimes a century would pass, a new judge would come onto the scene and remind the people of the law of God as Moses had written it down. And the people would say, where has this been? Why didn't my parents teach me this? Oh, woe is us. And they would tear their robes and put ash on their head as a sign of mourning for all that a generation previous to them had lost. Do you and I weep for what we are losing and what we have lost? Until we come to this complete and utter place of sorrow, because guess where we are in that cycle? We're enslaved at the beginning of the chains of bondage. This has been going on for several decades, quite frankly. It's been a slow progression in the wrong direction that's led us to this place. And there have been warning signs and warning signals along the way. There have been prophets of God who have called out the clarion call, turn away, come back. And they've been looked at and scoffed at as nuts and religious freaks. Until we get to this point of utter bondage and slavery where we have nowhere else to go and we are enslaved to the entrapment of the world because we've forgotten the word of God and to obey it and live it out until, sadly, we get to that place, repentance won't come. See, the wise know to repent early for their sins and not let it get so bad. The sad thing is, some of us have been blinded to believe, oh, everything's still good. Everything's great. There's nothing wrong. You know, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe. All's good. Where's that getting us? There are certain words or phrases you can't even say that are quite frankly innocuous but are now considered hate speech. We have what's called a cancel culture. Why? Because we're so offended that somebody might be saying something that we don't believe, with, believe in that we have to cancel them. We have to boycott them. They can't, they, we dehumanize them. Tell me what religion in the world dehumanizes people? It is not Christianity. Pri- I mean, despite what some might tell you. The enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy all life and to hold it in bondage and to deceive you to believe that there's no other way but his is the one who controls the structures of this world. But Christ says, my kingdom, guess what? It's not of this world. It doesn't look like this world, smell like this world, taste like this world. It doesn't walk and quack like a duck or anything like that. My kingdom is completely different. When you look at the kingdoms of the world and you look at my kingdom, it's upside down. The reality is, it's that God's kingdom is right side up, but we live in an upside down world. And until you learn to become a committed citizen of that kingdom... God's kingdom seems really upside down. But when you're living 
planted in the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, you see clearly more than you've ever seen before in your life. And you get to the point in that commitment, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. All that matters is who I am and where I am and who I am with. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. I haven't even gotten to my points yet. And it's 1130, so let me continue. Let's skip over the... I'm going to challenge you. That is a long portion of Scripture. Read over that. The whole of chapter 6, okay? I want to get to the points, and here's the key point. There's peace and wholehearted commitment. Let me say that again. This is one of the things as a parent I've learned in in parenthood that I didn't learn as a kid as well because I was pushed against obeying. I didn't like to. I was a decent kid. I didn't do anything horribly bad. You can ask my mom. She could give you dirt on me if she wants to. Right, Mom? You're watching, right? (laughs) Mommy? Mother, Care Bear, all right, her name's Karen, okay, sorry, a little shout out to mommy, (laughs) Um, but honestly, there's peace and wholehearted commitment, as a kid, I didn't understand that, the borderlines, the boundaries my parents put in place to protect me, to keep me secure, and to keep me safe, were not there to harm me, but as a kid, I'm like, you're always killing me. Why, why can't I do this? I want to do that. Guess what? As a parent, what I've learned, I see from a different vantage point. I see how what they tried to do in raising me, though that not perfectly, because none of us do it perfectly, what they are doing, what, what, I see what they tried to do now from a perspective of saying, oh, I, I get, and I have had to call and say, you know, I remember in my early to mid-20s, after we just got married and started having kids, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to apologize to my parents. <laughs> I'm so sorry for what I did. <laughs> my kids aren't at that stage yet. Um, <laughs> right, guys? I love you. Ian, where'd you go? Oh, there he is. All right, anywho. But there's a difference in commitment. I'm wanting them to commit to obeying our standards and our way of living because we try to raise them with a biblical foundation because I know the fruit, if they are rooted in this, when they become adults, should continue into the next generation. Raising them with that foundation of the Word of God, living that out on a daily basis in front of them as best we can. Again, they'll tell you, dirt on us because we don't do it perfectly. But guess what? Where we don't do it perfectly, I hope they would be able to testify to the fact that we come to them and say, listen, I'm sorry. I royally messed up. Have I done that, Micaiah? Come on, I'm putting you on the spot. Say yes. Okay, she won't answer that, but talk to her later. But where you mess up as a parent, because you're not God and you aren't supposed to be God for your kids, you are pointing them to God and you're showing the characteristics of a holy, loving God by admitting your wrongs and saying, listen, I was wrong here. I want to make this right. There is peace and wholehearted commitment. 
Even when on the front end, it doesn't seem like it. The first step in this process is to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's what he says. He gives us that foundational element. Where does all of this commitment start? It starts with love. Love isn't just a word. It's an action, much like commitment. Commitment's a verb. It's an action, just like this word love. Love, achava, in the Old Testament here, is the same word for agape in the Greek. And it is an unconditional, sacrificial love. It's not a love of emotion that is spurred by infatuation or anything like that. It is a love of commitment. I'm in. I'm all in. As Des said earlier from the stage, it's about being firmly planted and bound to Christ. A wholehearted commitment is what that verse in Deuteronomy 6 says. I love him that way. How do we love? The word Shema. What does Shema mean? To listen or to hear, more specifically. And so where the, the Shema, it is a very core, fundamental aspect of Judaism. Kids from the earliest age are taught the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the Shema. And then right after that, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But what is the foundation of that? It is the Shema. Now, Shema, meaning hear or listen, isn't just merely opening your ears to hear sounds. Do you know what this means? It means to truly commit yourself to hearing what's being said. It means to shut off everything else, give your full attention right here. And where you see the word Shema, Shema in sequential order, it means listen carefully in the Hebrew. Okay? You might see it translated in the English versions. Listen, listen. Shema, Shema. Meaning, I don't just want you to listen. I really want you to listen. See, what, 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 the, what Moses is trying to get the people to understand, you're coming into a land with multiple gods. Guess what? The United States has multiple gods. You are in a land of multiple gods that compete for your allegiance. But you need to shema. There is only one God. He always was, is, and will ever be. In Exodus 3, he tells this very Moses, I am that I am. Or I will be what I will be. See, the defining factor of who I am is eternity. I am the ever-present one who has always been and always will be. I did not have a beginning. I never will have an end. And in our finite human understanding, we can't wrap our heads around that. And so it doesn't fit into this box of science because we can't take God into a lab and break him apart. And so guess what science does? No, it's not science opposed to faith. Those things can coexist together. I want you to understand that. But secular scientists can't believe in a God that can't be completely probed and experimented on. 
If I can't see, taste, touch, hear, or feel, then it's not real. You see, this is where faith comes into play. This is where commitment comes up. This is where trust comes into play. It's where the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Now, is there evidence for God? Of course there is. It's abounding. There is abounding. If you are truly, if you take the blinders off and you don't come in with a bias or a preconceived notion and you really dedicate yourself to knowing the truth that can set you free, the evidence will always point to a God who cannot be manipulated in a lab. Okay? But his creation has the indelible imprint of his image on it, more specifically, you and I. And so where does this begin? The commitment begins with love. What more can I do with a God who so loved me? Not only did he die for me, but at the very beginning, he created everything. And he breathed life personally into all of humanity. You've heard me state this before. I'll state it again. It never ceases to boggle my mind that God spoke everything into creation except for humans. I just, you want to know the very nature of God who John in the letters of first, in the letter of first John says is love. You can see it in Genesis 1 and 2. In the formation of man from the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. And the intimate way he put man into a deep sleep to take a piece out of his side, bone and flesh, to create the woman. When all he would have had to do is, man, coming to existence. Woman, now exist. The second thing is to keep God's word ever present in your life. <clears throat> Why haven't I gone on to the mission field? Why uh, haven't I gone on to get more degrees and to teach seminary, which I would love to do eventually someday if they're ever still around by that time. Um, because I believe in the mission of God's church. Not the building, but the people. I learned a long time ago my hunger for God's word that grows more and more. And the more and more I read it, the more and more I realize how much I don't know about it. Which pushes me to know more. And more. So you may come to me with a question that will stump me. Because guess what? I haven't figured it all out. So I say that for two reasons. Don't put me on a pedestal because I haven't figured it all out either. But secondly, all the more reason you need to learn to figure it out. Why do you think I, I dig so deep and I tell you about the phylacteries and all that junk? Because I want you to learn. That's what a teacher does. A teacher teaches what they know, and then they learn more so they can teach you more they know so that you can continue to learn and grow too. And I would be remiss if I didn't do that. I would be, this would be just another job for me where I collect a paycheck and go home at the end of the day, but that's not it. This is a calling. It's one of those things I talked about earlier that when he calls you, it is a commitment. Do you think we would have chosen Western PA? <laughs> <clears throat> Now, that's not a, a slam against what? It was one degree this morning. You think we would have? Hawaii, maybe. No. Maybe Florida. Anywho, 
But do you think we would have chosen this? And it's not because Western PA is horrible or bad or not worth it. It's just, honestly, I have my own plans, my own thoughts. I, have my, I can lay everything, but many are the plans of man. And yet God directs his steps. And so it's been hard at times, but stepping out in obedience, guess what? We've always, we've always been fulfilled. It's been hard. It's been difficult. It's not always been easy. There have been a lot of tears along the way, a lot of laughter, a lot of great fellowship and friendships made along the way. But as I mentioned to you before, there's something unsettling about every place we've ever been. And I didn't come to realize this until we were here after a few years, that we weren't created for this. My home is in Kentucky, where my hometown is. But it's not my home. Ohio wasn't my home. Florida was not my home. Pennsylvania's not my home. My home is in a kingdom that never ends, in a place called heaven. And I know where that goal is. And so I continue to run that race for that prize set out before me, knowing that what I do here is relevant to what goes on there. Because I believe that all heaven rejoices when a soul is won to Christ. I believe that God mourns when somebody's lost. The last thing is we've got to teach God's words to every generation. <clears throat> Let me close with this. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Moses' day, the people were just as forgetful and rebellious as we are. I tend to, to here's what I tend to do when I go to scripture. I'm like, how could they be so stupid? I mean, it's right there on the, oh, that's right. They didn't have that. Right? They were living it out present day at the time. And when we live out present day, sometimes we stick our foot in our mouth. Sometimes we make decisions that give us bad consequences. And sometimes it's out of a moment of weakness. Sometimes it's out of a moment of ignorance. Yeah? And I think, I'd probably do the same thing. I'm sick of manna. Ugh. It's like sweetened rice cakes. Actually, we don't know what it tasted like, but that's my image of what I think it tastes like. But it had every bit of nutrients they needed. God provided. We want meat. They gave them meat. And then they gorged themselves on it and got sick. And he cursed them and several of them died. Oh, he's a mean God. But is he? No, he's not we got to learn in this generation to teach the next generation the Word of God. Not as Bible stories, as fictional little uh, uh, pericopes, but rather as living truth. But here's the thing. We can teach them till we're blue in the face, but if we're not living that out in obedience, it's just another, another assignment, really. See, it's hard. It's a challenge to live out your faith. And again, here's what we get into the mix of. If I can't do it perfectly, why should I even try? And so we go into this pretend thing and say, I've seen people pretend to live a perfect life, but I know that they don't, and their kids know that they don't, and their kids know them better than I know them, and guess what happens? 
The kids kind of thumb their nose at that faith that they saw their parents mimicking but never truly living out or actually charading around like they had it but they didn't. Do, do you hear this? Teaching to the next generation isn't just lessons about the Word of God, but it's living the Word of God. <clears throat> you say, well, I don't need to teach them. I just need to live it out. No, you need to do both. They need to hear it and see it. It's a both and, not an either or. How much more do they learn, not just by hearing, but by seeing, and then by doing because as a parent, you have, and as older generation, you have the responsibility to breathe life into the next generation by not only saying, let me tell you about this, let me show you this, but then saying, come, let's do this together. Are you doing that? Do you know why the next generation oftentimes goes off to college and they lose their faith altogether? <clears throat> because like what Paul says in Colossians 1 and 2 is that there's a lot of high-sounding nonsense and empty philosophies out there that are super convincing. And if they aren't rooted in the truth and know how to defend that faith because they know that they know that they know it, then they may just by chance believe in the things of the world. We have not done a good job at raising up the next generation. We've got to do better, church. And it's more than just Sunday school platitudes. It is everyone breathing life into someone else. Well, it's not my job. Actually, it is your job. If you are a believer in Christ, guess what your calling is? To go into all the world, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to what? Sorry, say that again. I heard one of you. Teach them to obey what? Everything I've commanded. Just not a couple. I could teach a couple things that I know about. Well, if you don't know about the other things, then learn about them. That's why I'm here. I come every Sunday. All right, you get maybe 52 times a week. You got, what are you doing with the other days of the week? you got to be in there. And you, this, you expect your pastor to say this, and I'm going to close with this. Um, you know how frustrating it is as a parent to tell your kid over and over to do, this, do, do their chores? Uh -huh. Did you make your bed? Why do you always tell me? Ugh. <laughs> if you wouldn't tell me, I'd just do it. Actually, no, you don't. <laughs> That's why I'm telling you. <clears throat> Read the Word of God. Meditate on it. Pray, and as much as you speak, listen. Well, how do I know if the thought comes into my head that it's God speaking? Well, if you are a student of the Word, and you see that it contradicts the Word of God, you know that's not a voice from God. But if it's in alignment with God's Word, you can pretty much rest assured that God's speaking. Well, how do I know if He wants me to go to speak to that person in the grocery store? Okay, why wouldn't he want you to go speak to that person at the grocery store? <laughs> what damage could be done by you going saying hi to somebody? And maybe probing a little bit. Let's be honest. The only doubt lies within ourselves and our own abilities because we don't believe and are committed enough to God that he would empower us to do what he's called us to do. As our worship team comes forward, let me, let me close with this.
is a story of Michelangelo, great sculptor of the Renaissance period. His uh, teacher was Bertoldo de Giovanni, right, Giovanni? You knew that, I'm sure. Bertoldo de Giovanni is his name, and even the most he's the most enthusiastic lover of art. You're, you're, he, he was not well known, but his students are pretty well known. He was the pupil of Donatello. Have you ever heard of Donatello? Not the mutant ninja turtle. <clears throat> Donatello was the greatest sculptor of his time. And he was the teacher of Michelangelo, the greatest sculptor of all time. Michelangelo was only 14 years old when he came to Bertoldo. But it was already obvious that he was enormously gifted. A genius-prone sculptor, Michelangelo was at 14. So Bertoldo was wise enough to realize that gifted people are often tempted to coast rather than to grow. And therefore, he kept trying to pressure this young man into work seriously at his craft. One day, he came to the studio to find Michelangelo toying around with a piece of marble far beneath his abilities. Bertoldo, in a fit of rage grabbed a hammer, stomped across the room, and smashed that piece of marble into tiny pieces, shouting this unforgettable message to Michelangelo. Talent is cheap. Dedication is costly. Talent is cheap. You are not going to get to heaven based on talent and abilities, but by faith alone. But remember, faith without works is dead. And if you're not growing in your faith, your works aren't going to show anything. There's a peace and wholehearted commitment to God. I don't know where you are in commitment today. Half-hearted commitment is not commitment. <clears throat> 25% is not. Well, Brandon, the faith of a mustard seed. No, 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 no. Totally different subject. If you have enough faith, that means you're committed to believe. But that faith may be extremely small. I was talking to some friends yesterday. Uh, they give out mustard seeds. or teeny tiny granules. And they thought, well, let's plant a mustard seed, right? And you did. And that sucker's huge. It's huge. And it still thrives amongst horrible weather and all of that you see what jesus was saying was your, your faith shouldn't stay that small it should grow and the way your faith grows is to put it into action the way that action happens is when you commit to obeying the lord's commands and letting them live in and through your life and out of your life on a daily basis it doesn't stop that's the way a part of our mission is to grow continually I hope you don't stop. I hope you haven't stopped. I hope you haven't said, well, it's the next generation's job to do what I've done up to this point. No, you, you haven't retired and you won't. Sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. Step up. Do you know we're still at 50% volunteer capacity? Here's my shameless plug. <clears throat> I'm not just asking you to commit to your faith in Christ, but does your faith live out in how you do your job? Do your calling. We have a next generation downstairs and upstairs right now. And they're learning the Word of God at a level they can on a shoestring budget and a shoestring personnel. 
Our youth meet on Thursday nights. Our youth have grown exponentially. You can ask BJ. I don't know where he is right now, but there are a ton of kids coming. A ton of kids coming that have no other church influence. And they're maybe learning for the first time what it means to have faith in this Jesus. In you who have been poured into for a lifetime, have a wealth of knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and experience that life has given you? Are you hiding that and burying it in the ground? Or are you utilizing that and investing it in kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are good. You are holy. You are righteous. And thank you so much that you were patient with us. You were committed to us when even we are not committed to you. Remind us when we fall short how much you love us as you remind us of the cross. But also remind us in addition to that, what you require of us is to love you with all of our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, And to remember that that's an action of commitment more than it is just words we speak. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand as we close? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.